Please join me in prayer. Lord, Lord, I come before you today. I thank you for saying this time. I thank you for this chance that we get to sit before you and open your word. Lord, we pray today that you would ignite this place, that you would light us up, Lord, that as we read through your word, that it would speak directly to us, to our very souls. I pray that you would bless me, that you would bless the words come out of my mouth, that the meditation in my heart would be acceptable unto you, and Lord, that my sinful self would be pushed aside. Because Lord, I know in only your hand it can be done. I pray that you would bless us in what we do, and as we come towards this word, and it's through Christ's wonderful and great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all doing good today? All right. I, I, I must admit, I am a little nervous up here today, more nervous than I thought I would because this is such an amazing place, and you guys are all amazing. If you can, um, open your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 15. That will be where we'll be spending our time today. And I ask that the Lord would bless this reading. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. And here ends the reading of the Lord. Amen. Whew. This is so sweet today, I'm telling you. I got a question for you. Are you walking with the Lord? That's it. That's a simple question. When they asked me to do this, they said, hey, what do you want to do? I don't have any other time but this date, so I could do this date. Didn't realize I was bringing up the rear here uh, at the very end. And I'm, oh, this would be great. I, I, I get to preach all the time. I do this on bass all the time. This is going to be wonderful. And I got to sit in the audience, and I got to listen to Rob and everybody else as they came up. And you had these amazing expositors of the word every single week. And it's just been so amazing. And I chose Psalm 15 because it is a psalm that I have found comfort in in my life as I have uh, kind of discovered it when I was younger. It was another chaplain that came up to me when I was asking many questions in my life. And the one question came down to, am I walking with the Lord? To know a little bit about this psalm, we have to understand the context of the psalm, the history of the psalm. I mean, the Bible simply tells us it's a psalm of David. That's it. It's a psalm of David. Now, from its outline, we know that it's classified as a wisdom, piece of wisdom literature. It's a wisdom psalm. It carries extremely heavy similarities with Isaiah 33, 14 to 16, which is what we classify all wisdom literature against. Uh, Isaiah 33, 14 to 16 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire, who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks truth and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of the oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, 
who shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be fortress, the fortress of rocks. The bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So we know a few things about Psalm 15 by going through this one here. We know it's a Psalm of David. We're told that. We understand it's classified as a Psalm of, of wisdom or wisdom literature. It's asking the high questions, the big questions. We do that a lot around here. That's why we, my family, we love coming here. We love being part of this church family. Uh, I know one of the first people I met was Rob. I'll brag on him uh, uh, for a second. I met him. He's like, come on over. He went over his house. We, I, I think with him, I had some of the deepest theological questions and conversations with him in five minutes uh, than I did in a couple years before that. It was a sweet time. But it brings me to myself asking questions as I look in the mirror. You see, this structure also places Psalm 15 at a time when David is asking those deep theological questions. Although we're not giving a date of the psalm and we really don't know the exact date, um, we do believe we know. We have uh, scholars such as John MacArthur, David Guziak, Longman, Garland, and a ton of others that believe that although there is no precise date of the psalm, it was most likely written as David was en route with the ark to Jerusalem. They pull this out of some of the biblical evidence as we read in 2 Samuel 6, as we read through that story. This morning, we went through 7, uh, 2 Samuel 7, how we were looking at what happened afterwards. But 2 Samuel 6 describes what happened and what brought these questions to David. Starting at verse 1, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Anadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahil, uh, the sons of Abinadad, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the, the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Sounds like a happy time. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Ben-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me. One thing we have to know about the big questions we ask in life. When we ask these big questions, am I walking with the Lord? Who am I before the presence of God? As we take a look at the example of David, before we even get into the psalm, it doesn't come out of a sense of joy up front. Uh, he was dancing and singing before that wasn't answering the, asking these questions. It was in times of trouble that these questions came around. It was when someone died, is when he had to question his very nature before the ark of God. 
You see, according to uh, Lloyd Baer, his text called Recovering the Literary Structure of Psalm 15, this was a time when David had no other choice but to ponder the hard questions. He's more specifically questioning his own worth as God's chosen leader uh, of Israel. He says that the ascent to Mount Zion is a question of increasing ethical perfection as well as geography. But is you see, this has direct relation to us. The context alone speaks to us as Christians, us that oppose the Messiah, us that have, have witnessed, us that see the Hebrew Bible through the eyes of a risen Savior. Are we approaching the altar? Are we? Through, our, through that process of salvation and sanctification, we are. Every single one of us, saved and unsaved, will find ourselves before the judgment throne of God. Whether we go willingly with a smile on our faces or we go kicking and screaming, every man, woman, child, everybody will sit before that throne. And we sit before that throne, our lives will be examined, and we hear one of two responses. Welcome home, my good and faithful servant, or be gone, for I have not known you. Are we asking the hard questions of our faith? Are we chasing God even in the midst of our troubles as David was forced to do? I know when I find myself in trouble, when I find myself in stress that is weighing me down and holding me down, I have no other choice but to cry out to the Lord. We just got done with Philippians and I love Philippians chapter three, especially verses 12 through 16. Paul stating, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I have some amazing friends, some amazing friends sitting here. You're all my friends. I have amazing people. We've had amazing conversations. We have talked about the Psalms over the last several weeks and it's been a blessing for me to sit there, and we've talked about everything from a fellowship of the believers in church membership. Um, I've had other conversations with people about dispensationalism. We talk about the heavy, weighty items, and it's something that we must do. But in all of that, we also must return to the essence of the gospel. We must always return to the question of who are we as we sit in front of the Lord? Who are we as we approach God's altar? It is those questions that David brings us to today as he raises these questions. He opens the psalm. He says, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? You got to love that first question. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, this question can both be seen literally and figuratively. We see this in other psalms. I definitely have to bring up Psalm 84, amazing psalm by the sons of Korah. They raise this question in a beautiful manner. They say, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for your joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the nest swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altar. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shields, our God. Look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, just like this psalm, as we read of David asking this great question, there's a literal sense and there's a figurative sense. First, the literal sense is he wants to be in the house of God. But this was not to be because the reality is that David was not of the priestly tribe. Therefore, living within the household of God was an impossibility. But it is for this reason that I believe David chooses the phrases that he does in this first question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? The Hebrew word which is pronounced gor, G-O-O-R, roll the R at the end. I'm not too good at it, gor. It means to abide in, to sojourn, to dwell in temporarily, to find refuge. It means to be saved. A better understanding is to find hospitality if we look at um, the hospitality of that day, to find a refuge within a tent-dwelling host. As per customs of ancient times, we're told in the expositor's commentary that in the gracious hospitality of the antique world, a guest was sheltered from all harm. His person was inviolable. His wants all met. So the guest of Jehovah would be safe can claim asylum from every foe and share in the bountiful provision of his abode to find refuge. I don't know about you, but I've been looking for refuge a lot. That's what brought me to my knees. To find that temporary home with the Lord where I can be safe from the woes of the world, from the mire and muck of the world. And then he uses the term tabernacle, which is extremely important. It also leads us to David's ultimate question. As per Exodus 25 to 31, we're not going to read through all the chapters, okay? But also found in 1 Chronicles 16, the tabernacle was the great tent that survived through the years since Moses was first commanded to build it. As we read this morning, as we listened to Pastor Dom, it is what was among the people. It was the place where the presence of God can be before man, and man can be before the presence of God. 
So David's greater question is not simply, Lord, where do I find refuge? It's, Lord, who can find refuge in your presence? Lord, can I find refuge? Can I find that hospitality? Can I be saved before you? That's the the larger question if we're to bring it to our vernacular. And I don't know, if David stopped there and simply asked that temporary question, I'd be satisfied, because that is a big question, is it not? That's the question that brings us to our knees. That's the question that forced me at the age of 22 to my knees to say, Lord, please, please save me. Please rescue me. But David has a deeper, more intimate question. A question that also we must be asking. He says, Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, although it doesn't look like it, this is a more intimate question. This is a question of closeness and permanence. The pronounced word for dwell here is shakan, not shakakan, shakan, okay? Shakan is an important word. Because in, in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean refuge anymore, although it's another word for abide. It means to settle down, to establish. It is to abide, but in a permanent sense. And then the holy hill is just as important. When he talks about the holy hill, this also places it within the time we believe it was written. This is most likely Mount Moriah, where he was directed by the Lord that the temple would be built and where the ark would rest. We read in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father in the place where David had prepared the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You see, this is a forward-looking question. The first question was a question of refuge. It was a question of salvation. It's just like us. It's a question of being saved. The next question is, Lord, Who can live permanently with you? Who can be with you for eternity? It's a question that directly addressed the permanent intimacy with God. So David's greater question here, Lord, who can spend eternity in your presence? But are these not the same questions we're supposed to be asking ourselves when we wake up in the morning, when we open God's word as we live life? Oh Lord, who can find refuge in you? Oh, Lord, who can dwell permanently with you? Who can spend eternity with you? It's these questions that carry us forward. It's these questions that remind us of our place before God, before a holy God who is beyond our ability to understand. These are the very questions that are supposed to bring us to our knees, that are supposed to bring us to the altar, because just like David, we are headed to the altar. We're headed to the mountaintop. Just like David, we sit before the same throne of God. And we sit before the throne of God. Have we asked these questions in our life? And have we given a response? You see, David doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us with the simple questions. He gives us an example. He says, this is that man. Now, this is not David saying that he is that man. Let's get that correct. This is not David saying, I am perfect. This is not David saying, woo, look at me. This is David saying, this is who I wish I can be. This is the man who can ask the questions. This is the man who can sit before God in his glorious presence. 
He starts in verse 2. He says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, nor takes um, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, this is wisdom literature, so we have to understand how it's written. It starts with the big questions. And then it has an example in the middle, and the example is laid out to where it talks about the inner being and the outward effect. And I want you to think about that, the inner being and the outward effect. So when we come before the Lord, there has to be a change to the inner being. And we'll get to that in a minute. But there has to be that change, that changing of one's mind. And the change of one's mind brings an outward effect. Now, every time you hear the word heart in Scripture, I don't want you to think the, the muscle that's pumping blood through your body. You have to think the inner being of man. That's what it's talking about. In this inner being, man, the first thing he says, it's going to be he who walks blamelessly. Now, the concept of blamelessness is extremely important within Scripture because it is part of the gospel, part and parcel. It's how God must see us as we sit before him at his throne. See, the concepts of blamelessness carry two different similar but similar ideas in the Hebrew Bible. The first was from the sacrificial system. We're animals without defect. We read about this in uh, you know, Leviticus chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6, in Numbers. This pointed to animals that were undefiled physically. You see, sacrificing a non-blameless animal to the Lord was a violation of biblical law and a disrespect for God. We read that in Mal uh, Malachi 1, 6 to 14. How bringing something that wasn't pure before the Lord, wasn't a pure sacrifice, was the same thing as insulting or cursing directly at God, is what the language tells us. But this also brought a second ideal of the idea of blameless. This is the ideal of moral perfection for an individual, for a human being. Blameless people were those who cannot be accused of wrongdoing before God. Not only is that apparent here in Psalm 15, but also Psalm 18, where David is seeking blamelessness in a moral sense and not a physical one. In Psalm 19, he says, keep your servant also from willful sin. Then I may be blameless. This idea of being blameless before God. But you see, we have the same God that David had. God is the same. He's immutable. It was the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Therefore, we are also called to sit before God's throne in a blameless manner. When applied to Christians, the quality of blamelessness is both positional benefit of salvation and a moral, moral character to be achieved. So it's positional and it's something to be achieved. Each person is worthy of accusation in the sight of God. Every single one of us. We're all sinners in the hands of an angry God. I love that line. But we are. We're sinners and we fell short. And we approach the gospel sometimes as if we're not. I was just listening the other day. I actually heard a pastor 
won't say who it is, but some of you may know, who turned to his congregation and he, he's making appeal to them to receive Christ. And he says, it's okay. Just try it on for 60 days. See how it feels. We treat the gospel like it's a used car. Like we could take it, drive it around, and then, hey, we're, 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 we're good. You know, that's just not the one I want to purchase. When the truth is, what it means to receive the gospel, what it means to become blameless, means to understand that I am nothing before God. There is nothing I can do on my own to force my own salvation. I can't build it. I can't take a hammer in the garage and build something that says you're saved. There's not a checklist I can have where I could say I helped the old lady across the street. You know, I, I assisted my kids with their homework. I read my Bible, so I must be saved, right? There's nothing like that. It's all in the hands of God and within God's will. You see, the blameless character of Christians is the full and utter intention of God. According to Ephesians says, he who chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, Christ's love and sacrifice for the church were such that he could present her to himself. Later in Ephesians, he said, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So there's a positional benefit of salvation. Once I got on my knees, once I was saved, God went, you're mine. And according to Ephesians, I'm sealed. Ephesians chapter one, I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that is a word that specifically means cannot be undone. You are sealed. My brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here today and you are saved, you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are sealed. There's no action or power of man that can take that away. But there's also a moral character that must be achieved because the byproduct of steadfast faith is what you do. Hear me again. The byproduct of a steadfast faith is what you do. It's your works. No, we're not saved by works. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't work your way into salvation. But by golly, you, once your life changes, once your mind changes, your actions should follow. Amen to that one? But he goes on. He says, beyond this idea of blameless, you must do what is right. Now, this is another thing here that we have to understand what the word means. Better translated, it's you must do works of righteousness. Not simply doing what is right, but truly having acts of righteousness that come from a righteous heart. A blameless heart, a righteous a heart of righteousness. The word is shedek. Shedek is this great word that it points to an ethical righteousness that comes from the hearts. We read about this in Romans. Remember, same God, same gospel. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we're talking about the righteousness that comes from one heart, it's not our own righteousness. We don't have it. It's not the righteousness of Paul Roman. If it was up to my righteousness, we'd all be lost. That'd be crazy. But it's the righteousness of God, the Holy Spirit, that seals us, that allows us to live in such a way, that allows us to approach the altar, doing what is right. 
Not only are we doing what is right, not only are we living within a blamelessness that is not our own, but we're told that it's he who must speak truth in his heart. Now, there's a difference here because we talked about righteous before, and that word righteousness means an ethical imperative that comes from the heart. It, it is not of your own. Here we talk about speaking truth. This is a sureness, a reliability, and a faithfulness to God's word. Sureness, reliability, faithfulness to God's word. See, the heart, the inner man, the mind, the heart, the soul, and all understanding is given not only in the Hebrew Bible, but almost word for word in the New Testament. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was not a command of outward appearance. That was a command of inward purity. When they were trying to trick Jesus, if we go to Matthew 22, they came to his teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law, expecting to trip him up. And of course, he looks at them and says, and I got to believe he was kind of laughing at them when he did this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Once again, this was not a command for outward perfection. This was a command for inward righteousness, for inward truth. So we talked about being blameless. Righteousness, speaking truth in one's heart. But he takes it a step further and he says, not only that, but it's also he who despises evil in verse four. He who despises evil. This is not simply saying, I don't like it when I see evil. We do that too much in our world. This is not just simply seeing something and saying, ah, you know, it's too bad it's happening. I'm just going to have to tolerate it because we're in a secular world. That got brought up by Rob so beautifully the other day. You know, you know, I judge, you know, this politics, I can't help it. I can't stand against it, but I just don't like it. No, according to this, this is the person that actually despises the despise. That's the wording. It means you hate what God hates. You hate the sin that God hates. You stand against the things that God stands against. We read about this, of course, and I I love Ephesians, by the way. If you can't tell, I keep going back to it. But Ephesians chapter 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Hate the things that God hates. But if you're going to do that, he also knows you got to honor those who God loves. Right along with that, he says, he who honors those who serve the Lord. And, and I love this one because I believe, like, my, the first thing me and my wife talked about when we came here about a month and a half, two months ago, when we got here to grace, was all the honor of those who loved the Lord that happened the moment we walked in the door. We could sense it. We can feel it. We knew that this was the place. It's this idea of honoring is to honor those who fear or in awe of God. Those who stand before a mighty God, knowing their place, knowing the Lord, knowing they're asking these big questions. Those who hold reverence for the Lord in their life. You see, to honor has a special meaning to it. 
And we like to use that word a lot, but then not live up or to honor means to respect somebody and hold somebody higher than yourself. That's what the word honor means. It doesn't simply mean, hey, you're a good dude. Hey, you're good today, man. Aloha for days. No, it means to hold them higher than oneself, to humble yourself before that person. We read about that in Romans 12. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love it when we bring it up to our, and we look at our elders. That was a big thing that me and my wife, as we're filling out the applications to be um, you know, members here, as we're looking at the church, one of the big questions that me and my wife always have to ask is, do we indeed honor our elders? That's a big thing for us. A big thing of prayer in First Timothy, it says, let the elders who rule be well considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This idea of honoring those who serve the Lord. And finally, he says, and he who keeps the truth and swears to his own hurts. Now, the truth in relation to the earlier part of Scripture that we read is God's word. Now, in David's case, we're talking about the Hebrew Bible. We're talking about the books of Moses. We're talking about everything that led up to this moment in his life. He who honors the word. David is bringing it back to the resting center of God's word. Is there a Christian perspective on that? We, too, bring it back to God's word. Now, David is looking at it from a perspective of looking forward to a Messiah that's going to come, looking forward to a God who's going to provide salvation. We're looking at it from the lens of the Messiah has already come. We're looking at his lens and we know the Messiah and we're looking back saying, yes, God's word. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sweet. That the person that can ask these big questions, it kind of seems daunting, does it? Doesn't it? I mean, just think about it. Blameless. That's a big word, right? Blameless. You know, we go into it here and you're, you're walking uprightly. Doing what's right, speaking truth in one's heart, owning to one's own word. Now that's the inward being. That the person that asks these questions is able to do this. Not of their own power, of their own volition, but of the power of God, of the Holy Spirit. Because there's a production. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for a good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. There's something that comes out of this. There's a production that happens when our heart changes. It says he does not slander. The idea of slandering, of looking at someone and talking down about them, of using your words to make others think less of them, we shouldn't be doing that. He who does no evil to his neighbor. We shouldn't be looking at our neighbor and thinking, how can I do evil next to them? How can I get one above them? I, 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 like, I like my next door neighbor. You know, how can I get my property line moved over a little bit? How can I do better than them? He who does no reproach against a friend. Brothers and sisters, your friends and family will fail you. You know why? They're not God. 
We're all sinners and we all fall and we all make mistakes. But the question is when those mistakes are made in our presence and maybe very near to us, what do we do? Do we look at that person in a sense of love and care or do we make a reproach? Do we try to get back at them? He who does not put his money out at interest. This was very much against the biblical mandate of hospitality. You wouldn't do that. It was considered taking advantage of someone close to you. It was considered failing in hospitality, failing in taking care of other people. And then finally, he who does not take advantage of the innocent. He who does not take advantage of the innocent. That does not look at somebody from outside the fold. Does not lift them up and say, hey, I got you back and then leave them in the dust. These are outward characteristics. The big questions. Well, what's the benefit of these big questions? I mean, you got to ask that question to David, right? You just watched your buddy die. He touched, you know, he, he touched the ark. He fell. He was trying to do something. He died. And David's asking these big questions. Am I worthy of bringing this ark up to the mount? Am I worthy of standing before the Lord? Because that's the big thing. Am I worthy to find refuge in God? Am I worthy to spend eternity in God? And he says that this man, the man who does this, the man who thinks this way, he who does these things shall never be moved. And I got, I got to tell you, I love the NIV translation. It says, he who loves these things can never be shaken. I don't know about you, but I would love to sit before the judgment throne of God when my time comes. I would love to sit there before God and not be shaken. Because brothers and sisters, just like David, we are all marching to the throne. We are all heading in one direction, no matter whether we're kicking or screaming or we're going there peacefully with a smile on our faces. We're all headed there. And as we sit before the throne, there will be accountability. He's going to look at this list and he's going to know that no one man can do all of these things as David looked at this list and knew the same thing. He's going to look at the sense of being blameless, of being upright, of doing righteousness, and he's going to see us in our sinful selves and know that we could not have done it. But we have perspective. We have perspective on looking back on the Messiah and the good news because that's what it comes down to, the gospel, God's word. That man was failed and sinful. That we needed to be saved with an ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross for our sins. That he rose again to defeat death. That he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Amen? That is our perspective. That is what allows us to sit there and ask the big questions. Every morning when we look in the mirror, we can ask the questions, Lord, where do I, can I find refuge in your presence? Lord, can I find permanent eternity with you? And we can know that as long as we have the Lord, as long as we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we can be that person that cannot be shaken. So my question is, are you shaken today? 
Are you sitting there today? Because we come here for many different reasons. And I would be a fool to lie to myself that we didn't. Some people are here because, hey, this is the gospel and I want to hear the gospel. This is how I live my life. Others are here like I did for many years of my life, sat there for social reasons, simply because my friends and buddies were there and they said, hey, show up. Or my grandmother forced me to go when I was a kid. We have others that are here that you may be asking questions in your life, like, is this me? I am shaken. Well, that's what the gospel is for. And that's why you're here today. Today can be your day. Today could be your day to look to the Lord and ask those great questions. Lord, can I find refuge in you? Can I find safety? Can I find hospitality? Can I find salvation? And Lord, can I spend eternity in your presence? Because those are the ultimate questions of life beyond anything we can ask, beyond anything we could talk about. Where are you with that today? Let us pray. Lord, Lord, I thank you for this word today. I thank you for the psalm. I thank you for David's struggle. I thank you for our struggles. I thank you for this chance that we get to sit before you today and ask and shout out, cry out these great questions, Lord. Lord, can I take refuge in you? Lord, can I spend eternity with you? I pray right now, Lord, that if there's anybody here asking that question, if there's anybody here with that raised in their heart, Lord, that you would provide that answer today, that your grace would take hold, that that gift of faith, that gift of faith would take resident in their heart, Lord, and that, Lord, you would speak to them now. And I pray for those that are here praying, say, I'm not shaking, but it's hard, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would lift them up and you would surround them with men and women of faith to pray with them. Lord, I pray today that you would be with us in this. And it's through Christ's wonderful and great name that we pray. Amen.